It's your Captain Rick Jones speaking to you once again from the bridge. We've got an incredibly special show today. Now, I like to say that desperate times call for desperate measures. (laughs) And sometimes you need to resort to desperate measures in making sales and creating revenues for your organization. So today's show is all about pirates and how to think and steal like a pirate. Many pirates became legendary, and my guest angler today is one of the true legends in the world of sponsorship sales. That's Harlan Stone, Senior Advisor at CSM Sports and Entertainment. We'll have another Tuesday tip, and yes, another great place to eat on the road with Rick. So pull up that anchor, and let's sail away to the world of pirates and privateers. Okay. What's a pirate's favorite letter? Yes, it's R, but his first love was the C. (laughs) Okay, enough kindergarten humor. But today we are going to discuss things we can all learn from pirates and privateers. So let's first of all talk about what's the difference between a pirate and a privateer. Well, a privateer actually was a pirate, but he was a legitimate pirate because he worked for a government. He either worked for Spain or Portugal or England or France or somebody, while a pirate actually worked for himself or herself. Either way, both systems were a true democracy. In other words, the captain didn't have any appointed power. He was just given power by his crew. And so, therefore, one of the first things you can learn from a pirate is how to lead. Because if you led unsuccessfully, then they might cut off your head or might make you walk the plank or just kind of drop you out to sea, you know, several hundred thousand miles from home. Uh, And so you had to be a pretty good leader from that standpoint. So let's talk a little bit about how that relates to our business today. So how how do we think and act like a pirate? Well, here's some qualities of a pirate that I like. Number one, they're one who engages in the art of piracy, and they take away from others. And in sponsorship sales today, you got to take it away from the other guy. you got to convince companies to do something that you want them to do and maybe eliminate something they're already doing. Secondly, a pirate is one who seeks treasures and builds loyalty by sharing the treasures with his shipmates. Again, I often find that, that properties that I work with think they get to keep all the money. Well, they don't. It just doesn't work that way. I may have told you this before, but I have this 20-40-40 formula, which says in order to secure a sponsorship, you're going to pay me or pay somebody or pay a staff internally 20%. That's the cost of doing the sale. Secondly, you're going to invest 40% of the money back into what the sponsor gets with assets, real assets. And then guess what? You get to keep 40%, which is a pretty interesting margin. Not many business operate under a 40% margin, but you get to do that. Third quality of a pirate, one who sails uncharted waters to find his fortune. You know, we tend to fish where the fish are, but sometimes we got to go to other places because everybody's fishing or everybody's seeking treasure from the same place. You've got to be willing to go to new places. Fourthly, a pirate is one with his eyes on the horizon, both from the bow and also from the stern. Okay? 
You can be looking at where you're going, but you better be looking behind you because you're not the only pirate in the sea. <laughs> there are other people maybe looking for you to take away from you. And when we'll talk a little bit today about loving the one you're with, taking care of the sponsors you already have because someone else is out there trying to poach them from you. And finally, a pirate is one who celebrates his adventures with winches and rum. And we're going to talk a little bit about celebrations today, too. So here are five pirate techniques that I think are applicable to what we're doing. Number one is pirates worked harder than others. Sponsorship sales is more demanding than it's ever been. It's not a nine-to-five job. You want to be successful? Well, start early and end late. Here's what I'll say about organizations today. There are only two kinds, the quick and the dead. If you're not quick, you're going to end up being dead. And so you have to constantly be moving and trying to close deals. You also need to be looking at at new ideas and new places and new potential prospects. I spend a lot of time reading magazines and looking at cultural trends and looking at who's advertising, who's written about, who's a new prospect in certain areas. I'll give an example. I'm working right now to try to sell a company, a sponsorship that is a company that refinances student loans. They're a student loan aggregator. And I'm, I believe they're perfect for college sports and perfect in certain segments that I'm trying to get them to because I can uh, accumulate or aggregate uh, targets for them in a very efficient manner. Um, I'm also big on attending trade shows. Walk the trade show, see what's going on, who's got new products and services, those kinds of things. I can also tell the great agencies, they're the ones that when you come to their agency at 8 o'clock in the morning, you see Chinese food cartons and pizza boxes or Uber um, uh, bags that are there because they're there after things have closed. They're still working late. At the same time, I've told you over and over and over again, if you really want to sell stuff, you got to get face-to-face. Pirates had to get face-to-face with buried treasure or face-to-face with another ship they were going to loot you got to get face-to-face with prospects. And then I may have told you this before. A lot of people come to me all the time and say, hey, Rick, I can really sell. And I say to them, hey, you don't have to tell me you can sell. Just take me to the cemetery. Take me to Boot Hill and show me who you shot. Who have you actually closed? And that's what pirates did. They'll tell you ships they plundered, uh, communities they plundered, harbors they plundered, um, and, 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 and so forth. So, That's the first uh, pirate technique, work a little bit harder. Second is where do you plunder? Now, I'm a big believer in winking at every prospect, but you better narrow your dating. Uh, I'm a big believer in what I call category management, looking at a category and going very, very deep into that category. Who, um, if let's say you're trying to sell an automotive, everybody usually thinks of the big you know, three automotives, but how about all the other automotives that are out there? Like I think Subaru is an interesting target right now. They have a very niche orientation. Uh, They support certain things. Um, And so you begin to look at at other cars uh, within the category. I'm also believing as I wink is who can I take business away from? Who has a poor sponsorship? It doesn't look like it's resonating in the marketplace. And is there a way that I can do that? Or who's doing something in one category, let's say college football, that is applicable for country music as an extension because it reaches, in many cases, the same audience. 
I also like to think about where your event is best for preaching to the choir, that very narrow audience, uh, specific audience that you're reaching. We're doing some things with historically black colleges and universities right now. Very specific target, but a very high income target uh, and a very affluent African-American base uh, that uh, people should be looking to preach to the choir. Uh, I'm also a big believer in what I call shameless promotion of your property. I'm not big on, on promoting fish bait. I've never been that kind of guy. It's really not about me. It's about our clients. But I am shameless about promoting things like the ACC or the Grand Ole Opry or CMA or the College Football Hall of Fame or the Mascot Hall of Fame. But when you do that, you got to be on message. You know, new studies have shown you've got about seven seconds to get somebody's attention. And if you haven't grabbed their attention within seven, section, seven seconds, they're going to tune you out. And so that means you've got to n- narrow your message and be very specific about your message. I'm always watching and listening for opportunities. Uh, pirates were always on, the, <laughs> on, the, on guard for where's the next ship coming through. In order to do that, I think you've got to ask everybody for leads. That's your friends, your colleagues, even your enemies, maybe casual acquaintances. Who knows somebody? We've talked about who do's before. Who do you know that I need to know, that I need to get to in order to be able to sell something? I'm also constantly looking at Facebook, but more importantly, LinkedIn for opportunities and connections. Um, I like to ask for an opportunity. In some cases, I even beg for an opportunity. Please, please, please see me. Uh, I think you have to use your best current sponsors for for referrals. If somebody's doing business with you and likes you and likes your property, well, use them. Find somebody else that they know in a non-competitive category and have them introduce you to them. And more and more smaller deals to start a relationship. You know, you don't always hit a grand slam. Just a a bloop single to get you on first base is something that I think is very important. And you can begin to build on that relationship. I like to focus on unsold inventory and then the appropriate matches for that specific inventory. And finally, look into your Rolodex. Remember those things? Those were those uh, things that you put business cards in. Most people do that electronically today, but you should consistently go back and look at who's in your database and who have you not talked to. And you should be trying to build your database. You know, you don't have to have another best friend, but you can never have enough friends, connections, or contacts. Number three, I live on a tidal river. And here's what I notice. All boats rise with the tide. All boats. And so who can you partner with? I don't have my own boat, but I have a lot of friends with boats. Those are the best. I'll buy the beer. I'll buy the gas. And they have to take care of the damn boat. I don't have to do that. But I love other people's boats. I love partners. And a lot of times in selling sponsorships, who can you potentially partner with? Could it be a media company? Could it be a charity Could it be other sponsors that you partner with to bring third parties in and that kind of thing? Number four, from a pirate perspective, they all get better looking at closing time. Remember that, guys? Years ago when you were single, you got less specific or less choosy around 2 a.m. Hey, you need to create and implement ideas that deliver real measurable and immediate sales results. If you can help a company immediately sell something, then you've got a better chance of having success to get them in your boat. I also like to look for cost savings in each package. 
You know, at some point, if you can save them money, that's going to make you uh, someone that they will look at a little differently. I also like to offer, as I told you before, I sell through my omelet station, offer multiple options and a la carte pricing to the prospect. Don't come in and say, this is it. Give them a chance to cherry pick and buy things that they want. And also, I like to do what I call reverse appreciation. Most people that I know come and sell a sponsorship, and they'll sell a three-year deal with appreciation. So it'll be 100000 year one, 120 year two, and 150 in year three. In my opinion, that's stupid. It's the only place I know where you buy in bulk and it costs you more money. If you buy soap, one bar is going to cost you, you know, X amount. But if you buy three, each one's going to be cheaper than if you bought them a la carte, singly. How about giving discounting for multi-year deals? What if you told them it was 100 the first year and 80 the second year and 70 the third year? That would give you a differentiation. Here's a big differentiation. What if you went to a sponsor and said, if it doesn't work, I'll give you all your money back? Hmm. That's one of those godfather offers, isn't it? An offer you can't refuse. Well, are you willing to do that? Are you confident enough that you can deliver value that you give a money back guarantee? See, here's the deal. If a pirate showed up and the ship was empty, (laughs) then they had to give their crew a money back guarantee. There was nothing to share. And finally, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Remember what I said earlier, you're not the only pirate on the sea. As you're sailing off looking to plunder from somebody else, there's somebody behind you looking to plunder from you. And so you have got to take care of the people you sell to today, your current sponsors. You have to become indispensable to these sponsors. You need to bring them new information regularly to your sponsors. In some cases, you may need to give them additional assets at no charge as a, I love you dearly, and I thought this was valuable to you, and I wanted you to have this as a gift. We're doing a a project this fall for a client, and we're buying some premiums at our cost to make the experience better for their customers. Because if you don't invest in your own uh, customers, your own sponsors, then who's going to do that? That pirate behind you might do that. And so you better be taking care of that. And I also think you got to constantly remind sponsors of what you're doing for them and ask if you can help them with anything else, what you might be able to take off their plate and add to your plate in order to create value. So finally, if you think and act like a pirate, you're going to see your success increase dramatically. Now it's time for the Tuesday tip. I mentioned earlier in our segment on pirates about they celebrate with rum and witches. Here's the bottom line. This business is hard. Sales are hard. Marketing communications is hard. You got to celebrate everything. Celebrate everything. Celebrate every win and keep score. Write them down where you have success, when you get a meeting, when you get a new prospect, when you close the sale. Have parties. Recognize teammates who have helped you win. Bring food. Bring lots of food. Bring rum. Even more rum. And that's your Tuesday tip. My guest today is Harlan Stone, the legendary sponsorship salesman. He has sold, frankly, to everyone. 
and he's trained dozens of great salespeople. He's had an amazing career, and he'll tell us all about it today. Here's my good friend, the best of the best, Harlan Stone. Harlan, welcome to The Bridge. Well, thank you, sir. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Let's start kind of with your journey. I mean, you always were an athlete. I know you played tennis at the University of Virginia. At what point did you know you wanted to work in this crazy business? Uh, It's a great question. And, of course, a lot of people would tell you if you're a tennis player, that doesn't make you an athlete. But uh, I'll take exception to that. What, uh, you know, I'm not sure you could get into the business today the way I got into it. I uh, logically taught tennis coming out of college, Rick. And I, um, one of the guys I taught was a guy named Joe Coleman. And Joe was the CEO of Philip Morris. By the way, this is the dark ages. This is 19, yeah. wow. 1980 or 81. And I was teaching Joe on his court out in East Hampton, New York, where I was a pro. And he said, hey, what are you, what are you doing? You know, the summer's over. I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. He said, well, why don't you come work for me? So I bought a suit and you know, and got a haircut and did all that stuff. And I went to interview. I presumed I was interviewing at Philip Morris. And at the, at the entire interview was uh, very disjointed. And he finished the interview by saying, well, what do you need to make? I said, well, I don't know, Mr. Coleman, what division, you know, I don't know. Philip Morris said, I'm not not having you work at Philip Morris. I'm having you work at the tennis hall of fame. So, so I didn't even know the job I was interviewing for. And, uh, and of course I said 16,000, which seemed like a fortune in those days. And he said, great, you start Monday, you're our head of fundraising. And that's, uh, that's literally how I got into the business. So my first job was 1981 at the tennis hall of fame. And I was their, uh, first ever fundraiser. Uh, and, and that's how I discovered that I actually like selling. And was the Tennis Hall of Fame based in Flushing or was it based up in Newport? It's, it's in Newport, uh, still there. Yeah. And uh, I spent about a year there and uh, I learned uh, enough to, to be dangerous in my own mind. And they, they used to host, still host a tournament at the Tennis Hall of Fame on the ATP Tour, one of the smaller events. And I went through that for a year. And then I decided this isn't hard. And I uh, found an indoor tennis club in New Canaan, Connecticut, and convinced the owner of the club to be my partner. And we started a Legends tennis event. So I was age 23. uh, And uh, we had Laver and Rosewall and Emerson and Fred Stolle and Yvonne Gulagong and Stan Smith. And uh, that tournament ran for 14 years. I took it with me through a few agencies. And uh, that's that's really how I got deeply into the business. You know, you mentioned Stan Smith. I, I remember a young person one time tell me, well, that's a tennis shoe. <laughs> and still, still going, by the way. Still going. I, and I, I don't absolutely. Know, and I don't know if it's uh, if it's apocryphal or not. But Donald Dell, who's been Stan's agent forever, once told me that Stan got a dollar a shoe. If wow. you can imagine that. Now, I have no idea wow. if that's truthful or not, but if he's still cooking in at a dollar a shoe, he never needed to hit a tennis ball for his entire life. No, it's amazing because this Stan Smith signature tennis shoe was like Converse All-Stars for basketball. It was the shoe. And it's still a fashion shoe. It's yeah. unbelievable. Anyway. It's unbelievable. So then when did you form Stone Sports? So Stone Sports really was for that tennis tournament. That's the okay. start of it. 
And I tell my kids, Rick, a couple things. Uh, uh, you know, my kids are in their late 20s and 30s. And as they think about their careers, I always tell them, look, there are two things. Be open to possibility. And, uh, and you know, I'd rather be lucky than good. And in, their, in the I'd rather be lucky than good column, uh, I sold BMW, a sponsorship to the tennis tournament, official car for $7,500. By the way, Rick, you're, you're as old as I am. You'll recall there were no lists. There was no email. Uh, everything was yellow pages. So I'm calling car dealerships out of the yellow pages. Anyway, I stumbled across a, a deal with the Connecticut BMW dealers. And my client, who represented the four dealers, was a guy named Ed Robinson. And Ed Robinson, uh, you know, trusted at that time a 23 or 24-year-old with 7500 bucks. Uh, he became the regional uh, marketing manager for BMW, and then he became the national marketing manager for BMW, and then he became the CMO. And he took me right along with him every step of the way, and we gradually expanded from just my tournament to other tennis events, and then equestrian events, uh, and then sailing events, and all the kinds of things that you would expect BMW to be in. And uh, BMW really was one of the first, quote, consulting clients in the business, certainly the first one I had. And uh, they were with me at Stone Sports, and then Stone Sports got sold to Golf Digest Tennis. And I went over to Golf Digest and Tennis to run all their events, and BMW remained a consulting client. And then when I moved to Advantage, which ultimately became Octagon, uh, Ed and BMW came with us there, and by the way, still there 33 years later. Yeah, it's amazing, that continuity of that. And it started uh, calling on the Yellow Pages with a dealer uh, and a dealer group. Uh, you know, and a lot of times it worked that way. I mean, it, it really shows, though, even today, in my opinion, it's still about relationships. I would agree with that. You know, I've never had a company buy anything. It's always been a human being uh, that ultimately, as you said, trusted you. You know, when we laugh, somebody said seventy five hundred dollars. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah, no, that was. I was. You kidding me? I was dancing a jig. I, I, I you know, I, I was ready to get out of my VW, you know, <laughs> golf with no AC. I had myself driving a, a three series in no time. It was that was big time. Well, did you did you meet the advantage people through? I, I guess through the tennis business because obviously they had come out of. Were they still part of ProServe at that point, or had they already? No, they had separated. So it was, it was, uh, and again, I'm sure for most of your listeners, this is ancient history. But for old guys like us, it's kind of fun and and slightly instructive. So well, here's the good news: it's my podcast, so we can talk about whatever the hell we want to. <laughs> the captain, whatever the captain says is exactly, lies. exactly. Uh, well, I like that. So um, it's interesting, Rick. So so ProServe and Advantage uh, were all one company until '83. And in fact, the, the original law firm was Dell, Craighill, Fentress, and Benton. And they were all pals from uh, Virginia Law School. And they, uh, speaking of Stan Smith, they started working on Stan's business because Donald and Stan had a close relationship. And they worked on Arthur Ashe's business. And they were primarily in the tennis business and, and decided, geez, let's, let's declare we're fully in the sports business. Uh, and that's when they became ProServe. And then in 83, uh, the partners split and Craig Hill uh, and Fentress started Advantage 
and Donald Dell and uh, Ray Benton stayed at ProServe. Uh, I got recruited, believe it or not, by Gary Stevenson and Frank Craighill. Gary was the head of marketing at uh, at Advantage. Uh, Phil DiPicciato was also part of the recruiting, and I was at Golf Digest Tennis, uh, and uh, and I was recruited in 1985, or rather 1987, to come and take Gary's place as that as the marketing guy at Advantage International, which ultimately became the Octagon. And I guess Phil Phil's the last last man standing. I mean, yes, out of the, out of the partners still there. Yep, does an amazing job, and uh, yeah, he's the last man standing out of the uh, partners. There were five partners at the time. There was a guy named Dean Smith, no relation to. Coach Smith, um, and he was sort of the financial guy. And I, you know, over time worked my way up and became the fifth partner, albeit, you know, clearly the most junior of the five guys. But uh, I was there for uh, 13 years. And Rick, I think we were one of the first in that corporate consulting business using BMW really as the anchor. Um, and uh, you know, I know you were well aware and, and, and part of the Olympic story with us, but it was quite an extraordinary uh, run broadening that business to really, you know, one that had, had been very focused on athlete representation uh, and broadening it to a, you know, to a much more broad corporate consulting and event management business. Well, we were talking earlier about relationships, you know, when, when you guys bought us, it, it really kind of centered around the fact that Frank Craighill had a, an amazing personal relationship with Paul Fulton at Sara Lee. And yet we, we won our little agency won the business. And, and I think Frank went to Paul and said, Paul, we've been friends forever. How come we didn't win? And he said, these guys know more about our business than you did go buy them. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how it happened. Um, and, uh, and the rest for my career and for a lot of other people, Lisa Murray and Lance Hill and others, that was kind of our our catapult. Um, and I, I look at I look back, um, the talent we had in that era was unprecedented. Yeah, you look at you look at what what our groups have gone on to do, and and obviously when we got you guys, it took us to a to an, you know, an incredible new level. Uh, and we, you know, we, I don't want to ever say we dominated that, that consulting business, but we sure, we sure were a force. Well, well, we had 16 Olympic clients in 96. I mean, that's, that'll never happen again. You know, everybody kept saying, how, how come we keep losing to these guys? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, uh, you, you mentioned Frank Rick and I, and he, you know, he was an extraordinary, uh, mentor, uh, I think probably for both of us in different ways, Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Frank gave me just an incredible amount of rope to, to, to go, uh, hang myself. Sometimes I did, but most of the time he's just supportive. And I learned a, a lot from him. He really came up with the game plan on the 96 Olympics, which was to, again, using his relationships with Charlie battle and with Billy Payne to go volunteer our time. This is back in 91, 92, volunteer our time, be part of the team, you know, with no explicit quid pro quo. Uh, I sound like Donald Trump, but no explicit quid pro quo. Uh, uh, but with an understanding that if we were in that inner sanctum, we were going to really understand what Atlanta was trying to get done. And we obviously leveraged that to 
to great benefit uh, to win, you know, most of the Olympic clients in that in in, in that era. Well, for the young people listening, um, you know, Frank's relationship with the Olympics had gone back even before that. He had a personal relationship with Horst Dossler at at Adidas, and and if you remember, the the eighty four games were. Um, still the wild, wild west. Um, Peter Ubroff uh, thought he was going to lose $200 million, and I think he made $200 million, much to everybody's surprise. And at that point, um, Coca-Cola had signed, I think, you know, 120 contracts with Olympic organizing committees around the world and, and said there had to be a better way. And Frank had the relationship with, with Horst, and that really created the top program and and I think Frank Craighill is the unsung hero of the structure of what has become the Olympic program. And, and you know, Horse died with cancer not long after that, and Frank was kind of the glue. You know, ultimately, I guess ISL got that business, but but it was interesting that the role he played as really as the attorney in putting that together. And then by the time '96 rolled around. Was really able to harvest um, the fruits from that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's an un- unsung hero of the movement. And you know, people forget Rick that in '84, there, nobody wanted the Olympics. It was seen as a money loser. LA had to sort of step up and and and, and bail everybody out. Well, you remember there were only two cities that bid that year: LA and Tehran, Iran, were the only two cities to bid, uh, and so. Because again, look, Montreal was bankrupt. We had, you know, boycotted Moscow in in eighty. I mean, the Olympic movement was in trouble. Um, and and clearly, today the success of the Olympics, I think, goes back to those, you know, very few people that were engaged, and and Frank was was certainly one of them. And so then we, I, I was actually with you. We were in the car together in London when Frank told us that. Uh, that they had sold the agency the day before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, you'd flown with him all night, and he didn't mention it to you, and then uh, he, he got us both in the car and said, so you stayed a little while with Octagon, but then you had a chance to leave, and tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, I stayed uh, for about another two and a half years, and then, uh, you know, we were in the dot-com boom, and uh, I had a chance to uh, a, a chance to run a little uh, – dot-com company, which was probably before its time, and I wasn't terribly good at it, called My Sports Guru, which relied on uh, teaching and coaching in a broadband environment. Again, this was in about uh, 99 or 2000, and, uh, you know, we take it for granted now, but not every home was was broadband-enabled, so we had all this great teaching content, but it would take you about seven hours to download a, you know, a lesson on shooting foul shots, so... Uh, uh, that lasted under a year. And then, uh, Rick, you may forget, I actually had a stint as the CEO of Momentum, which was owned by the same folks in Republic Group that owned uh, Octagon. Yeah, that's right. And I was uh, equally inept in that role. Uh, you know, I, I, I learned something that big is not always beautiful. And, uh, you know, on paper, the highest, you know, biggest salary job I ever had, a agency of 1500 people, 23 countries around the world, first class, everything. Uh, and I didn't enjoy it and I wasn't particularly good at it. I, I think you're either, 
you're either wired for small business or or you're corporate, and I'm definitely wired for small business. And I had a chance at that point uh, to join in about 2002 to join four guys I knew fairly well who had an agency called Velocity. Uh, and that was uh, Mike Reisman and Dave Grant and Alex Neroth and a guy named Bob Willamy. And uh, I became the fifth uh, partner there, bought my way into a partnership. And uh, again, they focused on the corporate consulting business. And I sort of brought the event management and property representation business in. And we had a great run. I was there for six years. And uh, I tell people, it's kind of funny, I sur- I've survived two five-man partnerships in my in my day, you know, Octagon was five, five of us and, uh, and, uh, and Velocity was five of us. Well, it's interesting. My, my good friend and client at ESPN, Rob Temple was one of the early employees of, of the predecessor agency, which was yep. ISIS. ISIS. Remember? And, yes. You know, we say ISIS and people look at me like, you can't, no, can't I, be it was ISES. Tim Smith and, um, and, uh, Chip Campbell, yeah, Chip Campbell and Mike, and and uh, they ended up sending Rob to Australia to open the office down there in in advance of the 2000 games, and he was down there and got hired away by the NBC of Australia, basically the host broadcaster, and was able to put together their packages, and then after the games came back to uh, to the States and has had a great career at, at ESPN doing similar things, but... Again, you know, I try to remind young people how incestuous this business is and how you're going to meet everybody again. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you just really are. And your career has been that way. I mean, you have had relationships and in some cases, guys that were competitors, um, you ended up going into business with or selling to or partnering with and I think that's a key lesson uh, for everybody. Now, did you leave those guys to go to the USTA? Was that the next step? We had the screenplay. You know, we'd seen the movie at at, uh, at Advantage. And so we sold um, Velocity to another holding company uh, called Aegis. Um, you know, better known probably by Cara Media here, yeah, C-A-R-A-T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we sold in 2007, uh, and I had a little stint, uh, you know, once again, stayed about a year, decided the big company, you know, I'd done the fun part of building it, and uh, managing it wasn't as much fun. And uh, I had a little stint at Major League Gaming, but then got recruited uh, to the USTA. They lost their <clears throat> chief marketing officer about six months before the U.S. Open. And um, I knew those folks. I had I had done a fair amount of consulting over the years to the USTA, you know, to your point about uh, relationships and actually was uh, playing some tennis with uh, <clears throat> Gordon Smith, University of Georgia and Georgia Law School grad. Yep. And uh, he said, hey, Harlan, I, I, we're in a little bit of a panic. Uh, we lost our CMO. We're six months out from the open. Uh, unless you love what you're doing, would you want to come over? And uh, that's how that started. And then did you leave the USTA and then that's when you went to CSM or was there? Yep, yep, yep. So I spent uh, about four years at the USTA and I, I, I learned a ton 
and I had never worked inside a property. Um, and, uh, you know, USGA is an incredible organization. The, the, the U S open itself. Uh, I never, I never, uh, misled myself that I was some great sales guy selling the U S open because that, that is a juggernaut. That is an extraordinary, you know, I'd never, I'd, I'd represented a lot of great events, but I'd never worked inside on a world-class event. And, and, uh, that was an extraordinary experience and a great experience. And then, uh, God bless the USTA. They let me hang on to the sponsorship business and bring it to uh, my own agency, which was called SJX at the time. Yeah. And uh, SJX has now become CSM. Uh, but uh, I was the S of SJX. I joined our mutual friend, Jeff Jonas. You put the band back together. We put the band back together, <laughs> uh, as you've suggested to the young folks, right? Don't... Uh, yeah. Don't burn any bridges and, and, uh, and, you know, always treat people the right way. And we were able to reassemble a lot of the sales team from going back to Octagon days and frankly, uh, kept the three core clients that we'd had since early Octagon days, Cirque du Soleil, Little League and U.S. Open and uh, started up the agency again in 2011. And then we sold it in 2014 to CSM, where I still uh, am working in a senior advisory capacity. Well, let's take a let's take a walk down memory lane for a minute. You, some of the things that you were involved with uh, were so innovative at the time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take our listeners back uh, several decades. But you know, one of the things you were involved with was around the first World Cup to be held in the United States. Was you went to P and G and you convinced them to do this this soccer fest that was. Uh, way, way ahead of its time. Talk about that event and how that process worked. Well, it was interesting. We we um, we had actually been doing some work for P&G on the Harlem Globetrotters. So we knew, uh, you know, we knew a few of the brands and, you know, it, it was whatever it was, 1992, probably when we were conceiving this. And Rick, the, the, you know, there was grassroots activity, but we weren't in an environment where people were thinking experiential the way they are today. Um, there wasn't that wasn't an automatic piece of every program. You, you know, you you would do a sponsorship and you wouldn't necessarily uh, have something that fans could see, touch and feel. And we thought about soccer. It's obvious appeal in the U.S. to to uh, to youth, particularly at that time when the sport wasn't as well developed, but was already very hot, you know, from a youth perspective. And we came up in essence with a traveling show where kids could come and do, uh, and the actual name of it was Soccer Blast, um, where kids could come and get a full day of soccer, get uh, teaching, do a whole bunch of fun activities. And, you know, we built what became traditional. We built some 18 wheelers, took them on the road. We stopped at civic centers and basically your price of entry was a very simple retail promotion. Show your proof of purchase. There was no online back then. Show your proof of purchase, uh, your box tops from any, uh, P and G product. We had about 10 of them and that was your admission and it was killer. And it, it ran for a couple of years leading up to World Cup. It ran during the World Cup year. I think we hit 60 or 70 cities by the time we were done. And it was basically a traveling uh, soccer blast targeted to kids sort of 8 to 13. And I think it really was one of the first of what 
we all say, well, duh, everybody does that. No, everybody didn't do that. Uh, it was um, kind of a legendary first step with a big, big company and multi-brands. And so there was a level of complexity. All right, the next one is still one of my favorites, the Cadillac NFL Golf Classic. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm proud as a peacock when I talk about that one because it had so many great pieces to it. The, uh, you know, the notion was uh, the magic of NFL players playing with golfers, you know, professional golfers. Uh, and we brought four or five groups that traditionally didn't work together and weren't easy to get to work together. And we brought them all together in this mix. So we got the PGA tour to agree to run a senior tour event. Uh, we played it at upper Montclair club, very nice club in New Jersey. We got uh, ESPN to broadcast it. By the way, the senior tour agreed to make it a two day pro-am as, as opposed to a traditional one day. The biggest piece, we got the NFL to commit their time and resources to it. Uh, we got Time Magazine to bring us a very significant uh, print media package, which was very important in those days. By the way, here's the clock on this one. This is 1989 we put this together. Don Garber, now the commissioner of MLS, was my client at MLS. He was the you know, a, a senior manager at M, at uh, NFL Properties at the time. And we got all those groups to cooperate and honestly produced magic, which was the chance for you or I as an avid golfer to play two days of golf with, uh, you know, Dan Marino and Lee Trevino or with uh, Jim Kelly and Arnold Palmer or with some other pairing and the, the fascination that the golfers had with the NFL players, most of whom were pretty good golfers, and the absolute uh, idol worship that the NFL guys, these 25, 30-year-olds had for Palmer and Trevino and Ray Floyd was extraordinary. And if you were a, uh, an amateur that got to be a part of watching that magic and participating in that magic, it was really special. And Rick, we, as you recall, we killed it. Yeah, it was a it, it was an amazing event, and I remember Al Del Greco. He had been a kicker from Auburn, and he he was he was like a scratch golfer. I mean, I yeah, he could fly. You know, of course, kickers. I mean, you know, I mean, I think he would. I think when everybody else was scrimmaging. He'd kick balls for about fifteen minutes, and then he'd hit golf balls for about two hours. Yeah, and he was a great player. Um, I was um, I was fortunate. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate right now to be doing some consulting work with Penn State, and Charlotte and I were up there uh, not too long ago, and and I, I realized that we were very close in State College to Williamsport, um, and uh, I've never been to Williamsport. I've never been to the Little League World Series, but you got involved in that early. Tell me about that and 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 the role you've played there with what's which is really a an iconic American institution. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Um, again, to your point about relationships, so in that brief stint uh, I had at My Sports Guru, uh, we, be, we became partners with a company called My Team. Uh, and again, this is in the crazy early days of uh, 
sort of internet teaching and coaching. Uh, and my team handled registration for Little League Baseball at that time. And through that process, I met Steve Keener, who was and still is the CEO of Little League Baseball. And um, uh, Keener, um, you know, they didn't have a very particularly big sponsorship business. And uh, when I got to Velocity, uh, I went back to Steve and said, you know, I've got an idea. Um, if done right uh, and with the right brands, you know, what you have here is really something special. It is a slice of Americana. I mean, Rick, a side note, hard to believe, right, that 400,000 people descend on Williamsport every summer to watch uh, 11 and 12 year olds play baseball. I mean, it's just it's so much bigger than the activity on the field. It's just, uh, you know, it's 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 extraordinary. And it drives huge ratings on ESPN. Huge. Yeah. And, the, and uh, anyway, so so lo and behold, Steve said, yes, let's kind of tiptoe into it. And we did it very carefully and we nurtured it. And we ended up with a 16 year relationship with uh, with uh, Little League. Again, lucky that they followed me and my team through a variety of uh, agencies. Vanessa Tavares, who was with me at uh, at Octagon and, and at Velocity and now at CSM was uh was the key person all the way through uh or most of the way through and uh it's it's become such a big deal that actually mlb as of last year has taken over their rights so uh we had our 16 or 17 year run and then we we stepped aside because mlb realized this thing is just so extraordinary rick i i tell people despite representing the u.s open uh cirque cadillac nfl uh Ryder Cup, all sorts of great activities. The the most inbound phone calls I've ever gotten in this business have been related to Little League. Uh, companies want to know how can they get involved and how can they be associated with it. And, uh, you know, obviously Little League is pretty careful about what they do and who they do it with and and how commercial they'll make it. But uh, it's it's extraordinary. The stat we used to use to sell it is on any given night during the summer, there are 10,000 Little League games going on. So the magic of Little League, Williamsport's the icing on the cake, but the real magic is the connectivity for a brand with, you know, 10,000 games a night, uh, 3 million kids and their families uh, every year. It's just amazing. Well, we, we all remember playing Little League baseball and I remember I was a 12-year-old pitcher, not in the major leagues. At that time, it was in the minor leagues. But I was a, I was a good pitcher, and a, a, a group called the Braves came and said, we, we want to call you up to the majors. But I was, I was the ace of the minor league team, and I had a, a wonderful coach who was a house painter. Uh, I'll never forget. And he had the saddest eyes when he thought I was going to leave. And I ultimately – I look back and I made the decision not to do it. I, I wanted to finish with my team, and we we pitched and won the championship. And and then unfortunately, nobody wanted a thirteen year old the next year. And the rules were you couldn't pitch as a thirteen year old in the minors. So I went from being a twelve year old pitching ace to being a thirteen year old first baseman. Uh, 
but I still remember fondly and and the influence that 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 you guys and sponsors have had on young people and their parents is pretty extraordinary. Harlan, we've talked a lot today on our show about about pirates. Um, and I, you know, the great pirates went out and got ships. Um, you've been one of the best I've ever seen at closing deals. Talk a little bit about your sales process. I mean, you now have, we're, we're, we're looking now, I hate to remind you how old we are, but we're, we're now in, you know, four generations, four decades of sales success, and you've done it every step of the way. Give, give some advice to people out there about, about your process and why it's been successful. Well, first of all, you're you're uh, too generous in your praise. Uh, uh, I think it, dude. If you if you've done it, it ain't bragging. You know, I think Rick. Honestly, I think there's two pieces, and and I think you're and many others are much better at thinking through formally the process. I listened to your last podcast, which was fascinating on the on touch and feel and scent and everything else, and and I think you know I'm probably. Uh, sort of like, uh, you know, old school, right? It's like, are you an analytics guy in baseball or are you an old style scout that does it by feel? I'm probably more the old style scout that does it by feel. But I will say where where process does play a role is is sort of twofold, right? I, I, I'll give you a few of my tips on selling for our younger folks that are listening. But I think it starts with you really do need to believe in what you're selling. And and because it's hard to get excited about something that you don't believe in. And, and one thing that I've done and our team has done, I think is become incredibly disciplined about what we represent. And, you know, if it's shop worn, if it's something that's been out there a long time and someone else hasn't been successful, odds are we're not going to be successful. Is it unique? Right. I tell people I, nobody loves tennis more than I do, but I'm not sure I want to represent uh, an ATP tour event in a city that's not a great market that doesn't have a unique hook and is not in the Masters 1000 series, right? Represent unique quality to the degree possible, one of a kind events. If you think about where we've had success, Cirque du Soleil, right? It's indescribable. There is no other Cirque du Soleil in the world. Little League Baseball, 70% of all youth baseball in America is Little League Baseball. It's dominant. U.S. Open, you know, obvious. Where where I think you can struggle is where you represent something that is a me too. It's one of 30 or 40 stops on the golf tour. It's one of 50, you know, music events. If it's Coachella, that's fantastic. If it's a music event in your background, in your backyard, not that a niche can't succeed, but I think a lot of my success and our team success is believing in what we're selling and does it have enough uniqueness to it that it's going to be appealing and you can get excited about it. Um, I think on the on the sell side, you know, all selling, as you know, is engendering trust. Right. How quickly, as you said, companies don't buy, people do. And what do people buy into? They buy into Yes, what you're selling, but also they're buying into you. Do they like you? And I think the magic is how quickly can you make yourself trustworthy and likable and you don't have a lot of time to do it. Um, and so what what does that trick? One is, is of course, you know, kn- knowing something about 
the person you're selling to and the company, the brand you're selling to. That's obvious. Do your homework. Uh, but personalizing it. What is your connection to the property you're selling? What's your connection to the person you're selling to? What's the story that 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 you've got? You know, I think about I tell my little uh, uh, U.S. Open story. We were scrambling to get a sponsor in uh, two years ago. We had about two weeks. We had a sponsor drop out, and Lou Shear, my client, said, "Hey, if you can generate something, uh, you know, last minute, let's do it." And I was talking to him on on my phone on a Sunday, and a postal service truck drove by. I said, "That's weird, postal service. I don't think of them as Sunday delivery." Sure enough, send an email to the CMO at the Postal Service, who I didn't know. I said, hey, I'm a senior executive up in Darien, Connecticut. I just saw your truck go by. To, to, is one of your issues that people think it's only FedEx and UPS that deliver on a Sunday? He says, interesting. Yes, that's so I got an idea for you and convinced him that obviously that a lot of people that attend the U.S. Open are senior executives, probably have the same view of the world that I do and personalized it. And that's what made that sale. So I personalize it. And then, Rick, I always say, go to a meeting with some giveaways, right? The, the whatever property you re- represent is not a panacea for everything the brand needs. Whatever company you represent doesn't do everything great. It probably does some things great and other things not so great. I do certain things really well and other things not very well. I think when you're upfront and find a way to weave in the things that you're not good at or that the property won't do, it, la- it, it, it adds veracity to the things that you say it can do. So if I'm selling Cirque, I say, you know, I'm not sure Cirque is a great PR vehicle for you. But what I will tell you is that when you deliver a Cirque invitation, as opposed to a sports invitation that might only appeal to the dad or an arts invitation that might only appeal to the mom, Cirque is universally loved by families, moms, dads, and kids. Show me another property that can do that. So you, you, you begin to, I've given away that's not a great PR vehicle, but that's going to add some, some value to the rest of the stuff I'm trying to sell. Yeah, and so I think some of the key takeaways here are authenticity, uniqueness and always be alert <laughs> for the postal truck. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. And then, and then, and then the last thing I say is, is uh, right. It's you got to remind young people uh, like to go back to be a human being school. What we do is fun, right? God bless. We're not, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not brain surgery. It's not funeral plots. <laughs> We're not divorce lawyers. It's fun. And so the person on the receiving, it's shown, be yourself, right? If you're, if you're fun and upbeat and positive and, and having a good time, that person should feel that. And, uh, and if you don't feel that, then selling may not be the right business for you. Well, I think those are great words for us to end on today. I can't thank you enough for being with us today from the bridge. Thanks, Rick. Now we'll close with today's On the Road with Rick. A couple of years ago, I found myself in Paris for the week. Charlotte and I had gone in a what we call a Paris immersion trip 
where we literally stayed in a hotel for a week and had guest lectures in the morning, followed by a, uh, a walking tour of France. And then you had free time in the afternoon. Well, on nearly the last day, uh, we found ourselves in the Montmartre section of Paris. Now, I may have told you this before, but I keep a file on every place I've ever been and every place I want to visit. And so I have a file. And so I can pull out my file and say, okay, what is in this particular section of France? And uh, I had read about this restaurant in the Montmartre section of Paris. That is the section that you may know that at the base of the hill is the famous Moulin Rouge. And at the top of the hill, when you walk up the hill, is the Sacre-Cœur Basilica. But I had found this amazing restaurant called Le Coq Rico that I had read about. Now, I'd read about it. I had a file on it. But we're just wandering the streets of Montmartre. And guess what? We stumbled onto it right at lunch hour. And fortunately, they had had a cancellation. And we were able to get in there. And we ate an amazing lunch of roast chicken with vegetables that was truly a religious experience. They use and roast only heirloom uh, chickens. So very, very flavorful chickens. Um, But during that meal... They mentioned that they were about to open a second restaurant in New York City. And they have. Le Coq Rico is located at East 20th Street in the Flatiron District in New York. And I've been there too. And it's just the same incredible food. They have lots of great French items, but you must get one of the rotisserie chickens and the frites to go with it. That's a great place on the road with Rick. So that's our show for the day, and it was a good one. We'll see you right back here next week from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. But I can't be nobody else but me.